0: Dear Heavenly Father, as we come before you in prayer this morning, we're so glad that we can sing that song, Only a Sinner Saved by Grace. Lord, we are so glad that the salvation that you offer is all of you and none of us. We cannot be earned, it cannot be kept only by your power and through the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Lord, we ask that you would help us as we attempt to worship you this morning. That the singing, the special, the uh, preaching, the offering, and Lord, especially the time of invitation would be acceptable in your sight. We offer ourselves to bring glory and praise to your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And I'd like to call your attention to the verses printed on the banners once again. Be still and know that I am God and that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to James chapter 1. I want to do this a little differently than I have in the past. Um, I love the truth and the fact that the Bible is its own best commentary and uh, the events that are recorded in the Bible are not made up stories trying to illustrate truths but uh, in all actuality many of them are just simple factual stories of lives lived details of how people face different things and we we are all uh, familiar uh, with the book of James. Uh, its theme is simply practical Christian living. And we start in verse two of chapter one. It says, "My brethren, count it all joy, when ye fall into divers temptations. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect." A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Now, as we read these verses, we we are given a command here. We are given a statement that when we fall into diverse temptations, we're to count it all joy. And uh, so oftentimes, that is really the last thing that is on our mind uh, when we find ourselves uh is the uh uh song it is well re- referred to the uh, the the story behind it uh tragedy at sea uh it's hard for us to think about counting it all joy when we fall into diverse temptation when there's reversals when uh in our job and in our economic when things happen to our nation uh when, when we find ourselves in circumstances that we would never choose, the last thing that normally enters our mind is to count it all joy. And yet every time I ask the question, how many of us could use a little more joy in our lives? And just about every hand, including mine, goes up. Hey, uh, that, that is something we need. But according to James here it might be something that is there that we need to count, that we need to take an accounting of, that we need to uh, uh, ask God to uh, just consider it done that God is doing. Here's the reason, is knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Uh, How many illustrations could... Could we give Uh, several years ago uh, during Fleet Week Memorial Day, the USS New York, a brand new amphibious assault ship was there and and I got a, uh, uh, we visited on Fleet Week and I got a t-shirt that said uh, tested, I mean tried, tested and selected. And uh, what they were talking about was they had gone out to Staten Island where the remains uh, of the World Trade Center, uh, uh, was uh, dumped and had salvaged, uh, I can't remember, it Was I think it was uh, well over 20 tons of steel from the building, and they remanufactured that steel and built it into the bow of that ship. And uh, Andrew got the corresponding T-shirt that said 120,000 ton, 120, tons of New York Attitude. Uh, talking about the USS New York, and, and uh, we we understand that there's got to be a testing process. There's got to be a trial. Uh, we we could use the illustration of any uh, fine uh, blade cutting instrument, uh, whether you're using it in a chef or a, 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 in a weapon. It has to be. Uh, uh, I mean. Um, uh, melted and put together in a special alloy that has to be heated and cooled and, and all of those things to make it strong. Nothing is worth anything that's never been tested. And we sometimes frown on testing. We frown on the difficulties. But in the truth of the matter is, God has given us that. Because he wants to do a work in our lives. And the reason James is writing these things is we need to understand that when we find ourselves in difficult situations... Now, uh, I feel like sometimes we need to explain the other extreme here. Uh, If you go out and play in traffic on purpose and get run over. That's not what this is talking about, alright? Uh, this is situations that arrive that have nothing to do with you. And God has brought them there and it says, But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. You know, there's, every one of us is going to stand before God one day. And when we stand there at that judgment seat, wouldn't you like to be complete? Wanting nothing. That, the, the word perfect just simply means no parts lacking. Now, here's how we get there. Wisdom. That's the next verse. We need wisdom. Wisdom is not knowledge. Wisdom is knowing what to do with knowledge. Uh, Knowledge can be a very dangerous thing, can it not? And just knowledge by itself, the Bible tells us that it puffeth up. If you've met someone that knows a lot of stuff, and the first thing that they really know, most of them, is that they know a lot of stuff. Uh, I met a guy one time, he said, I, I've come up with answers to questions that you're not even smart enough to ask. Uh, well, okay, that, that may be very true. Uh, but we'll leave you, keep your questions and your answers, because what I'm interested in is learning how to serve God. Amen? Learning how to live for Him. What we need is wisdom, and there's only one place you can get wisdom. It comes from God. Now, some of the most misunderstood verses in our Bible along this line, it says, but let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. And so somebody came up with the idea that, uh, okay, God, I really, really believe you're going to do it this time. That's, That's not what it's talking about. What is faith? Remember last year's sermons? Hope you remember last year's sermons, right? Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Faith is believing God's word to the point of obedience. So, when I'm asking in faith, I am asking according to. To God's words. Amen? And nothing wavering means I'm not going to change what I'm doing or the course of my life. How many times have we tried to do something for the Lord and you waver and you quit? And that's what the Bible says. Let not that man think that he shall receive... Anything of the Lord. And the next verse is a double reminder here. Uh, uh, Actually, it says, A double minded man is unstable in all his ways. Now, be honest this morning, how many of you have ever had an argument with yourself? The only problem is, no matter who wins, you still lose. Right, that's being double-minded. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. I think it was um, Robert Louis Stevenson probably come up with the greatest illustration of a double-minded man in his fictitious, praise God, character, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And uh, I've always thought about preaching a sermon on Dr. Jekyll comes to church and he leaves Mr. Hyde at home. Uh, but the point that we're trying to make here is this idea of being double-minded is what stops you from serving God. You cannot second-guess the Word of God. Asking in faith is asking according to the Word of God. Nothing wavering is not how much emotion or quote-unquote sincerity you may attach to that prayer, but it is obedience attached to the words of God that you're praying about. And sometimes we get double thinking. And we, one minute we're one way, the other minute we're another way. And uh, the world has a fascination with the term schizophrenia, uh, meaning that you have more than one personality. Oh, The Bible addressed that a long time ago. It's just simply being called double-minded. Now, how well you define that is how much time you spend arguing with yourself and being back and forth and trying to... uh, I think a president coined the term compartmentalization, if anybody will remember that... Uh, uh, I can be the most immoral man in the United States one minute and a good president the next. Uh, double-mindedness and it destroys us. It it keeps it makes everything we do ineffective. And it's one of the greatest battles we have to face because we do have. If you're here today sa- and you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit of God living in you. And you still have that old sin nature that you inherited from Adam, that dead spirit that you're dragging around. And they battle with each other. And we've got to fight that battle. And and I want us to look at a story that we know very, very well, that back in Daniel chapter 3, and, and I believe we'll see a great correlation here, between what James is telling us to do and, and the life that they lived here in, uh, as they went through this ordeal in Jan- Daniel chapter 3. And there's no way that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could know what James would write about. Uh, this happened about 600 years before Christ was born, and James would have written his book somewhere in between... Uh, 40 and uh, 60 A.D. more than likely. And, and so there's no connection what for, whatsoever except all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. You see... Did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego find themselves in the midst of diverse temptations? Hello? Yes? No? Maybe? Absolutely! Let's read the story here. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was three score cubits. That's about 90 feet tall. And the breadth of it, six cubits. So it's nine foot wide and 90 foot tall. And he set it up in the plain of Dora in the province of Babylon. Now imagine how much gold it would take to make a statue nine stories tall. But it was only about nine feet in, circum- in, in diameter. Uh, when I stretch out my arms, that's about six. So half that again uh that was a strange-looking image. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar, verse 2, Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent to gather together the princes, the governors, and the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the providences to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the princes, the governors, and the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the providences were gathered together unto the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then an herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king hath set up. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth the same, I mean, sorry, and whoso falleth not down and worshipeth it shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace." So here's the king's command. He sets up this statue, 90 foot tall, solid gold. And he commands all of the people that are important. All of the rulers, the sheriffs, the counselors, anybody that has any position in the government of his kingdom. And he gathers them all together here to worship and dedicate this image that he set up. Now, this is just my opinion, but... How many of you believe with me that the face on the top of the image looks strangely familiar to Nebuchadnezzar? I I mean, that that may just be my imagination, but I I think that it's probably grounded in, in a little bit of fact. How many of you remember the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had before? And God was going to reveal to the king the history... Of the world it's kind of funny how that the archaeologists they love to downplay Babylon well it was only a, a vassal of the Assyrian Empire well then why is the Ishtar gate from the city of Babylon rebuilt in the museum at the in London uh, every king in the world has talked about the city of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar's wife came from a mountainous country. And, of course, Babylon, the city, is in the plain. It's flat. And, and so Nebuchadnezzar built what was called the hanging gardens of Babylon so his wife, who was from the mountains, could feel at home walking in this vast superstructure of plants and things that he built, layer upon layer and layer. There was a man-made mountain. In the middle of a desert, they said you could take four chariots with horses and drive them around the top of the walls of the city of Babylon. Stop and think about that. The Euphrates River ran through the center and they had brass gates built across the river of, of the Euphrates and embedded in the, in the bed of the river so that no army could float down the river and get into the city. It was a fortress. And, of course, the river brought in fresh water and took out the wastewater at the other end of the city as the current went through. Listen, it was one of the most perfect fortresses built in the history of mankind. The walls of Babylon were never breached. That was Nebuchadnezzar. The Bible tells us in Daniel's vision that his kingdom was the golden head of the image that would represent the kingdoms of this earth that went down. And we don't have time to run into all of that, but uh, I think Nebuchadnezzar clamped on to that head of gold thing. In fact he made one 90 foot tall and he stuck it there and he's going to say everybody's going to come and worship me because I am the great king and if you don't want to worship me we're going to throw you into the fiery furnace now why did they have a fiery furnace here right next to where that gold was that golden image well you have to melt the gold in order to make the image I think gold is about 2,200 degrees Fahrenheit. Water boils at 212. So 2,200 degrees, somewhere right in that neighborhood is is the melting point of gold. So that furnace had to produce some serious heat. And Nebuchadnezzar said, well, we're done melting the gold. We'll just burn up the people who don't want to worship me. somewhat arrogant wouldn't you say Uh, God took care of that in chapter 4 but I want you to understand a few things did Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego put themselves in harm's way did they cause this problem no no it was Daniel, after interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream, read the last verse of chapter 2 here. It says, Then Daniel requested of the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the providence of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. So Daniel was there in the gate of the king. But Daniel had asked Nebuchadnezzar to promote Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, how many of you know what happens at work when somebody gets a special promotion not based on their own merit? It's called jealousy, isn't it? And sometimes hatred and and animosity and all kinds of words that we like to put in there. But none of it's any good. And so here we have Shadrach, Meshach, and again Abednego being promoted at Daniel's request. It was Daniel's interpretation in Nebuchadnezzar's dream that gave Nebuchadnezzar the idea to make this image of gold. Nebuchadnezzar was worshipping himself. The only problem was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had made that same covenant David, did, uh, Daniel did in chapter 1, that they would not defile themselves with the king's meat. In spite of the fact that Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was laid waste, They were going to worship God. So they were doing what was right and all of a sudden they found themselves in the midst of diverse temptations. All they had to do was bow the knee and nothing would happen. Except they would break God's words. And we have a way of justifying things that break God's words, don't we? It's okay. No, it's not okay. These three men understood. And so the edict was given. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were there. They had to be there. They knew what was coming. And they said, what we're going to do is we're going to honor God. God first. They refused to bow to the temptation knowing that the result of that might end up with a visit to the fiery furnace. Verse 8, Wherefore at that time certain Chaldeans came near and accused the Jews. Does that sound like jealousy? Hatred? Here we have these Jews in charge of the providence of Babylon. You didn't even pick us Chaldeans. This is our city. And they won't even bow down to and obey the word of the king. And so they go on and, and Nebuchadnezzar calls them. In verse 13, we see that Nebuchadnezzar is already upset. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage and fury, commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego Then they brought these men before the king. Now look at verse 16. Nebuchadnezzar tells them, listen, maybe it was a misunderstanding. Maybe you didn't hear. I'm not going to worry about why you didn't do it the first time. I'm going to give you a second chance because I'm such a nice guy. And look at verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. You know what they said? We're not choosing our words carefully. We're, we're not going to be uh, trying to make this anything less than what it is. We're not going to do it. We have chosen To obey God rather than you. Now, look at the next verse. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thy hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Now, that's pretty rude, isn't it? They said, King, we're not picking our words carefully. Our God is able to deliver us. But we want you to know we are going on record that if he doesn't, we're still not doing it. If we burn up in the fiery furnace, that's fine. Because we would rather die than obey and worship your false God that you have set up. Well, they passed the first test. Amen. Now comes the second one. As you can see, the veins popping out on Nebuchadnezzar's face. And the red flush that comes with that uh, total rage and fury, that uncontrolled anger of someone who has never, ever been told no. And Nebuchadnezzar... Commands them to heat the furnace one, seven times more than it was wont to be heated. Now, gold melts at 2200 degrees. And you multiply that by seven, and that gets you up about 14,000 degrees. Uh, whether he actually got there or not, we know what the king was saying. He was saying, I want you to make that furnace hotter than it's ever been heated. We're we're going to make sure that this thing happens. There's not going to be any tricks here. And so as they heated then they he commanded the most mighty men that were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their hose and their hats and their other garments and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. So, how many of you have seen those big turbans that some people wear and, and that? They had unwrapped that thing and wrapped up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They uh, pulled off whatever leg coverings they had and used them to tie them up. They were bound hand and foot. And so his mightiest men carried them, and because of the urgency of the king's commandment, the fire, the furnace was exceeding hot and as the men, the guards got close to the furnace to throw them in, the heat cooked them, killed them. <coughs> the temperature of the furnace was hot enough to kill the most mighty men in his army because they got too close. And they had to get close because they were throwing these three men, into the furnace. They fell down. Let's read it here. Verse 23, And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Now, you just got to think this. Here's at least six bodies littering the entrance to the furnace here of the men who threw Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego into the furnace they're dead and the king's going that's that, I'll show them nobody's going to disobey me verse 24 then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished and rose up in haste, and spake, and said unto his counselors, Did not we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said unto the king, True, O king. He answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Now, how did Nebuchadnezzar, a godless king, recognize what the Son of God looked like? Well, let me tell you. You won't have any problems recognizing who Jesus is as long as he allows you to see him. Amen? And by the way, here's the best way to see him. It's through faith in God's Word. Amen. Nebuchadnezzar was shocked. And some, some people have asked the question, why, why did the fourth man come? Well, it, it, in my mind, it's very simple. Who was going to untie them? They were bound hand and foot. They were thrown into the midst of the fiery furnace. Who was going to go in there and untie these guys so they could get out? It wasn't going to be any of the guards. They were already dead throwing them in. And so the Lord Himself had to come. And He untied. Now, don't you just love the way God toys with the greatest accomplishments and plans of man? They threw them in the furnace... And they're in there walking around. On the coals. In a furnace that's heated seven times hotter, as hot as they could possibly get it. The guards are still dead, laying outside the face of the furnace. A warning as to how hot the flames really were. You see... God works when he will get glory from it. Amen? It was Nebuchadnezzar that had actually issued the challenge to God earlier in the chapter. I think it's verse 15. He said, uh, Who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? He said, I, I'm going I'm to show you guys something. I'm going to prove how great I am. You're not going to defy me. And yet, they were inside, walking around. Now, wouldn't that, wouldn't that be absolutely an incredible experience? But, let me ask you a question. Would you want to go through what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went through to get there? Because they didn't know what was going to happen. See, you and I, we know what was going to happen. We read the story. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had no idea what was going on as they were being tied up. They could feel the heat as as they were getting closer and closer to the flames. But God protected them. And they were never hurt. We say amen to that. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes close and he asks Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Ye servants of the Most High God, come forth and come hither. Now he's always used to commanding, but he didn't say anything to that fourth guy now, did he? He didn't want him coming out of that furnace. But he recognized something here. He said, I got a high God out there, 90 foot high, that's high. He said, but you guys serve the most high God. And they examined them. In verse 28, Then Nebuchadnezzar spake and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who hath sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him and have changed the king's word and yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree that every people, nation, language which speak anything amiss against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their house shall be made a dunghill because there is no other god that can deliver after this sort. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the providence of Babylon. God was doing many things here. But I want to challenge you. The primary goal of God in this story was not the promotion of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That just kind of happened because Nebuchadnezzar didn't want to get on the bad side of their God. It's just that simple. He recognized how great their God was. So what I want us to do is go back to James chapter 1 and see how this fits. You see, it says, Brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations. I want to remind you that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did nothing to bring this situation upon themselves except to obey the words of God. It was Nebuchadnezzar, it was the jealous Chaldeans there in the city who didn't get the promotions that they got. They they were the ones that put Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the limelight. They did not run from the issue. They did not try to file some kind of complaint and, and religious discrimination suit. They simply kept doing what they were supposed to do. They were the servants of Nebuchadnezzar. He said, come, they came. They stopped obeying Nebuchadnezzar when Nebuchadnezzar demanded that they stop obeying God. That's a pretty good rule for life now, isn't it? Keep us out of a lot of trouble. Now, I don't think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were high-fiving each other and laughing and saying, Boy, we're in trouble. This is a great thing. No, what were they doing? They were working together as they always had to encourage each other to be obedient to God's word. Can I ask you, might that not be a good working definition of joy? Of being able to obey God's Word in the fact that everything around us is not obeying God's Word? Hello? Amen? You see... They knew that God could deliver them. They knew the God of Israel was greater than the fiery furnace. And they wanted to tell Nebuchadnezzar that, and they did. But they say, but they also said, even if God doesn't deliver us, we're going to still be faithful to God, no matter what. They had no idea what God was going to do. Could I suggest to you that they may have been knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that she may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. They, they understood that there was one thing to do. The temptation was to disobey God, was to... Uh, uh, worship false gods, and they refused to do that. They counseled together. They, they encouraged one another. They said, we're just going to be obedient to God's Word. We have no idea what God is going to do. He can deliver us. He can let us burn. But we're still going to count it joy to be obedient to God's Word and not worship any other false gods. That kind of attitude might help at work on Monday morning or wherever we are. Is to just simply understand that the greatest joy of the Christian is to obey God's word, isn't it? Isn't that what the Bible says in Hebrews about Jesus who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame? It was that obedience that gives us our salvation. It's that obedience that protects us. It's that obedience that is is what God seeks. We talk about a worship service, but real worship includes real obedience. Otherwise, it's not real worship. That's why so much of what goes on today is geared to making you feel things and have an emotional attachment to whatever is going on because there's no other reality to it. But that's not the way the Bible is supposed to be lived. Amen? The Bible wants simple, honest, life-changing obedience to God's Word. And the more obedient you are to God's Word, the more able... We are to resist the temptations that fall on us from this world. And the better we bear up under the trials and the difficult times. We say amen to that? Amen. Now, the next verse is, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God to give it to all men up liberally and upbateth not. And it shall be given him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not have a copy of the Bible they could carry with them. In fact, anything that they might have had would have been taken from them when they started Nebuchadnezzar's college for training to work in the government of Babylon. The only thing they had was what they had learned as young people in the city of Jerusalem. They held on to God's word very tightly. God will never scold you for asking wisdom. God will never be upset with you for saying, I don't know what to do. How many of you got in trouble for saying, I don't know what to do? I mean, we all do. If you've got a teacher, it's in the book. Right? If you work in a very technical uh, type of, of work, they'll tell you it's in the training manual. It's, it's, in the, it's in the shop manual. It's in the instructions on how to assemble this. Well, God says you can always come and ask in wisdom. But you've got to ask in faith. Nothing wavering. And then the double rejoinder of the uns- the double-minded man is, uns- is unstable in all his ways. Now, if they had got looking at the fiery furnace and got thinking about their own personal safety, do you think that would qualify as double-mindedness? Uh, absolutely. And they would have failed the test. You see... They didn't know what God was going to do. And they certainly needed wisdom. And that wisdom showed up in the personal, pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ to untie them. And then he said, come on, let's go for a walk. Where are we going? In the furnace. Jesus knew that Nebuchadnezzar needed a little bit of time to take in all these details and to try to figure out what was going on. He knew what was going to happen. There's a verse in Hebrews that says, but you have need of patience after you have done the will of God to receive the promise. I mean, the first thing I would have been wanting to do is... Those things were untied as I was wanting to bolt for the door. How about you? Well, that wasn't God's plan. He said, you just stay right here. Right in the fire. And Nebuchadnezzar called them out. And Nebuchadnezzar now understood not really who God was. That's chapter 4 took Nebuchadnezzar seven years to figure out who the God of Israel was, is. But if we could take just a moment and look at our own lives and how we live. There's not a one of us in this room. It's not carrying some type of burden, some type of difficulty, some difficulty in this life, adverse circumstances. not a one of us It's not facing something. The Bible says we're to count it all joy when we fall into diverse temptations. Now, what is that joy? If, if we allow Daniel chapter 3... The joy ought to be that this difficult situation I am facing is an opportunity to be obedient to the words of this book. Amen? It's a little different definition of joy. But it's really what happened in the lives of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I'll tell you this, if you would adopt that same understanding in that same direction you will have joy in your life if you understand the greatest thing I can accomplish is being obedient to what the Bible says Amen Now we can't waver the wavering is when we try to come up with a better way of doing God's Word than what God already said. Or we try to compromise, or we try to redefine. That's the wavering, or maybe we'll even go as far as being double-minded. Well, I'll, I'll do this today because it pleases God, but then... I've got to do this exact opposite thing over here because it pleases this person that I've got to please. The three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, knew that they could not please God and Nebuchadnezzar. Therefore, they chose only to please God and they never, ever gave it a second thought. That's being single minded. That's what gave them the strength not to cry like little babies as they were being tied up and dragged to the furnace. Not to scream like little girly men as they were thrown in. And then God delivered them. And you know what? Do you think anything else that could have happened to them in their lives would have even approached what they'd already been through? You see, that's, that's what's called patience. Hey, listen. You want, you want me to compromise my belief in God? I, I've been through this before. Why don't you talk to Nebuchadnezzar about that? Uh, I think he'll change your mind on your request of us. Patience is the ability not to get upset. We think patience is the ability to suppress that upset. No, it's still there. Patience is the ability not to be upset. You see, it starts when I count it all joy. It continues as I understand that God is the one that has to do the work. I'm not going to solve this problem. I'm going to ask God for wisdom, but that wisdom is going to be based on faith. And that faith is going to be based on God's Word so that nothing wavers. And I'm not going to double think and rethink and try to figure this thing out once we get started. We're going to keep the course till we get to heaven. And guess what? That brings patience. Because the next test may be greater than the one you're facing now. But it won't seem that way because you're already starting off on a different plane. Are we all together on that? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you today. And Lord... I cannot see in the hearts and lives of people here, I do not know the specific things that are testing them and, and even tormenting them in their personal lives. Yet, Lord, I, I do know the answer. It's in these verses that we read in the book of James. If, if that person is saved, if that person knows you as their Savior, the answer is right there in the Bible. Lord, Lord, I just pray that we would submit to the authority and the direction of your word and ask you to work in hearts and lives that you may be lifted up and glorified, even in the eyes of those that are unsaved around us. In your name we pray. Amen. As Andrew comes to lead in the hymn of invitation, if you need to come and pray, the altar is open.